Good morning, Living Water. I uh, hope everyone's doing well. Uh, I know that there's a lot of fatigue in the room. I've talked to a handful of people. I am fatigued this morning for some reason. Had some, what I thought was good sleep, but I woke up and I'm like, man, I'm just dragging today. And then um, after church, we get to take a trip to Dallas. Our daughter, Sarah, and her husband, Tyler, moved down there this week. We're seeing further her education, and he's going to go to work, um, DFW Airport and security, and so we're excited for them. Uh, but we had a long day ahead of us. But I'm always glad to be here in the church and to see my friends and family and to see your smiling faces. That was a hint. I see Chris back there smiling, but the rest of you look sleepy, so smile for me. It's good to be in God's house this morning. As David said, open your Bibles to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, and we've been in this series called The Moral of the Story, and we've been looking at some of the parables of Jesus, more, the more popular Um, parables of Jesus. You know, about a third of the teaching of Jesus was done in this format where he tells a story, and it's an earthly story with a deeper spiritual or heavenly uh, meaning, and uh, we looked at some pretty good ones. Well, today we're going to look at what I believe is probably one of the most popular parables of Jesus, the parable of the Good Samaritan. And so I'd like to do is just begin by reading that uh, passage, praying, and then just jumping right in. Is that okay? So let's read together in chapter 10, verse 25. It says, One day, an expert in religious law stood up to test Jesus by asking him this question. Teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus replied, What does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? Then the man answered, You must love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all of your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Right, Jesus told him, Do this, and you will live. The man wanted to justify his actions, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied with a story. A Jewish man was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho, and he was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes, they beat him up, and left him half dead beside the road. By chance, a priest came along, but when he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road and passed him by. Verse 32, a temple assistant or a Levite walked over and looked at him lying there, but he also passed by on the other side. Verse 33, then a despised Samaritan came along, and when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. Then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn where he took care of him. The next day, he handed the innkeeper two silver coins or two denarii, um, telling him, take care of this man. And if his bill runs higher than this, I'll pay you the next time I'm here. Now, which of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by bandits? Jesus asked. The man replied, the one who showed him mercy. Then Jesus said, yes, now go and do the same. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We we love you and we're here for you. God, we want to hear from you. And so I pray that in this moment you would open our, our hearts to receive your truth, that you would open our ears to hear and our eyes to see what you might want to share with us today. God, help us to be more like you today. I humbly ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So the story of the Good Samaritan is a a very familiar parable of Jesus. Um, It has become an idiom in our culture today to speak of someone who sacrificially gives to someone who is in need. I I read a story of a, uh, it's a few years back now, of a man who was going to fly out of Omaha, Nebraska, and he is up at the ticket counter, and when he had booked his tickets, his little one-year-old daughter was going to be one of those lap babies, you know, where they fly in the the airplane on the lap, but by the time the flight had arrived, she is now two years old, and when they arrived at the ticket counter, 
the, the, the clerk there says, what, how old is the, your daughter? And he says, well, she just turned two. He says, do you have your ticket? And the man was panicked because he didn't have a ticket for his little girl. Well, there was a, a lady standing nearby, and she overheard what was going on. This man's panicking. He's freaking out. He goes off to the side. He's making phone calls, head in his hands. Um, and this lady walks up and says, what's the problem? And she goes back with him to the clerk there at the counter and says, I want to buy that little girl a ticket. The clerk said, do you realize how much money that is? It's like 700 She goes, yes, it's $749. And she said, I want to buy that ticket. And so the man's like, can I have your name? I'd like to repay you. She said, no, don't worry about it. It's something I want to do. If you look that up, it says, Good Samaritan helps, you know, like desperate dad. Or Good Samaritan buys ticket for toddler. Um, we, we know the story of Good Samaritans, right? The idiom there that somebody just helps someone else in their time of need. And a lot of that comes from this story, this parable. In fact, there's the Texas um, Good Samaritan law that if someone is hurt and you're trying to help them out, rendering aid, you accidentally hurt them unintentionally, that you're protected under the Good Samaritan law um, from civil lawsuit um, if you didn't intentionally hurt them. Um, governors have tried for years to use this passage to pass legislation. You know, we need to be um, compassionate. We need to help. The problem I have with this, this is going to be me getting on my, my soapbox for just a minute. The problem with politicians is they never want to use their money. They always want to use other people's monies to show compassion. And so I think it's uh, hypocritical of them to use this passage, try to push legislation um, using this. But we understand uh, the parable of the good Samaritan and what it means. But... When you consider this story, I mean, it's an easy one to kind of dissect into, you know, what's the big idea of this story? That's easy. But I think that when we zoom out a little bit, you know what I mean? When we're looking at it so close that when we back up and see a bigger picture, that's called context. When we get a greater context of this story, I think we see a deeper truth um, that, that we can learn today that um, I, I think is just uh, amazing. So uh, context, what is Context. Context is all the things going on around the passage, like who's talking, who's he talking to, what's going on, what prompted this discussion, what was the culture like there, um, what was the, the geography like, there's all these things that go into building context, and the reason it's so important is it helps us get a better understanding of the passage that we're studying. Someone has said, if you take a text without context, it becomes a pretext for a proof text. What that means is I can take a Bible verse out of context and make it mean whatever I want it to mean. And it's a very dangerous way to approach Scripture. And so we, we look at Scripture, and when we do that, we should always read what's going on before it and what's going on after it to get a big idea of what's happening in Scriptures. Amen? So when you look at the greater context, as I said, we see a deeper truth than just a, a good man helping out another person in time of need. So let's look back at this parable and let's walk through it. It begins by saying that one day an expert in religious law, some of your translations will say a lawyer, not a lawyer like our lawyers today, but this person was well-versed in the law of Moses. So in all the Mosaic law, he knew it. He was an expert. And to be an expert, they needed to know there were around 1,200 laws that they needed to know, and there were like 612 commands that they were commanded to keep. And so he was an expert in religious law. He, he's sitting around with everyone else listening to Jesus teach. And in those days, the teacher would sit down and those that were listening, the pupils would sit down. And when they had a question, they would stand up to ask the question. It was kind of a sign of respect. But we know in this context, this guy kind of had an agenda and he was just trying to trap Jesus in his teachings. And so it says an expert in religious law stood up, but it says to test Jesus. 
by asking him this question. And listen to the question. Teacher, what should I do? Keep note of those two words. What should I do to inherit eternal life. Now, I think if he was genuine in asking that question, Jesus might have responded uh, differently. I don't know, but because he was testing Jesus and Jesus knew this, he stands up and says, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And I love this because if you pay attention to the flow of this passage, it's like this. The man asks the question, Jesus responds with the question. The man answers Jesus's question, and then Jesus answers the man's question. And it happens again. The man asks a question. And this time Jesus tells a little story, the parable, before he asks the man a question. And then the man answers the question and Jesus answers his question. That's how it flows. So the man asks the question, what must I do to inherit, inherit eternal life? And Jesus responds with this question. What does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? So it's interesting here that Jesus don't say, hey, the law, that's old stuff. Let me show you a new way. He says, what is the law? You're an expert in the law. How do you read it? What does the law of Moses say? And just on cue, because he's probably memorized it his whole life, he's an expert in the law. He immediately um, quotes Deuteronomy 6, the Shema, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and all your mind and all of your strength, right? And then he quotes um, Leviticus 19, 18, and this is the first time in the New Testament that those two commands are brought together um, in one. Jesus would later do it in Matthew 22, the greatest command to love God and to love people, and all the other commands hang on these two is what Jesus said. But here in this moment, this expert says the greatest command is to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and Leviticus 19, 18 says love your neighbor as Yourself. And so he spit out, he quoted the law back to Jesus. And Jesus responds in verse 28, right. He says, you're right. That's what the law says. Now do this and you will live. Now you might imagine, okay, is Jesus saying that we could inherit eternal life by doing these things? And I don't think it's what he's saying at all. In fact, I think there's a little bit of sarcasm. I can't prove that. But in Jesus' response, because this is an expert in the law. And he's good at spitting the truth out, but Jesus is like, yeah, right, right. Do all of that, and you'll have eternal life. Now consider for a moment what he's saying. The law, the command was to love God with everything we are. Can I just ask you a candid question this morning? Does anybody ever do that fully all the time, every day? Love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength. The reality is none of us do, right? Do, do any of us ever fully obey the command to love our neighbor as ourselves? Well, it depends if the neighbor's a friend of mine or a family member or a church member, right? But do we fully obey that command? So in reality, I think what Jesus is saying to the expert is like, yeah, if you could do all of the laws and fulfill them perfectly, you don't need grace. And you could inherit eternal life. But we know from the Apostle Paul and the book of Romans that that's impossible to inherit eternal life by the works that we do. So Jesus responds, hey, fulfill the law perfectly. Love the Lord your God with everything you've got and love your neighbors yourself and you can have eternal life. Church, can I just tell you that every time we sin, whether it's lust, whether it's lying, whether it's pride, whatever it may be, every time we sin, we violate the command to love God with everything that we are. Amen? Every time we, we fail, every time we sin, we violate that first command to love God with everything that we are. And so having Put this man kind of in his place by saying, hey, do this and you'll live. You're right. You, you gave me the law. It's what it says. Do it and you're good. Good to go. But at this point, I want to push the pause button because I think if I were there and, uh, you know, or in the shoes of that expert, I would say, but Jesus, that's impossible because no one ever does it perfectly. And Jesus said, aha, now you're on to something. 
And the man might, the man might say, well, what do we do now? I mean, if, if that's the way we inherit eternal life, how are we going to get it? Because no one's perfect. And Jesus said, hey, i got some good news for you. That's why I'm here. But he doesn't do that because he wants to justify himself. So he stands up to Jesus again. And he's trying to split hairs now. He's like, hey, define your position, Jesus. Who is my neighbor? Right? Obey God or love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. And he's like, okay, 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 okay. Define neighbor. And Jesus gives us this parable. So he says, a man, and if you're reading the New Living Translation, it says Jewish man. That's unfortunate. That's not a good translation because the word is anthropos, which simply means human being. So we don't know. Was he black? Was he white? Was he rich? Was he poor? Was he Jew, Gentile, Samaritan? We don't know. He was just a man, right? So a certain man, some translations will say, a man was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho. Okay, this is known as uh, the road of blood. And the reason it's known that way even today is because it's a very dangerous territory to travel. From Jerusalem to Jericho is approximately 3,000 feet drop in um, elevation. So above sea level to below sea level in about 17 miles. And so imagine the terrain and the cutbacks and the, the drop-offs. And so it was a perfect place for thieves and bandits to kind of hide, hide out. And as you would come around the bend, they would just jump you and rip you off and steal your money and all this stuff. And so that's what happens to this guy. He's going from Jerusalem down to Jericho, and he was attacked by bandits. It says they stripped him of his clothes, they beat him up, and they left him half dead beside the road. This guy had a, a very bad, terrible, no good day, right? He was beaten up and left for half dead. Now, in that moment... You know, you're hoping, who's going to come to his aid? Who's going to come help? And so Jesus goes on to tell the story, and the expert in the law is hearing him say this. By chance, a priest came along. Um, if you look in the Greek, that says descend. And so he's coming from Jerusalem to Jericho. They believe that the priest lived in Jericho. They served in Jerusalem a week at a time. And so he's off work, on his way home from work, from a long week of work at the temple. And he's descending from Jerusalem down to Jericho. And it says that he came across this man. It says he crossed to the other side of the road and passed him by. Now, we don't know why because this is a story Jesus is teaching. But many people understand a priest, you know, they, they couldn't get near a dead body because it would make them ceremonially unclean. And they would have to go through this cleansing process and then it would enable to be used next week when they go back to work or whatever it was. So, um, he came by this man, and he passes on the other side of the road. The problem is the man wasn't dead. He was half dead. He was beaten, and he should have rendered aid to this man, but he didn't. He passed on the other side. The one that you would think who had the commands of Christ to love your neighbor and to treat with respect the foreigner that's in your country as though they were part of your family because you once were foreigners yourself. That's also in Leviticus chapter 19. You would think that the one, the priest, was going to be the guy to help, right? Wrong. He passes by on the other side of the road. It says later, in verse 32, a temple assistant, well, that's the, the Levites, um, they were responsible for a lot of the things in the temple. It says um, he came by, and he did a little better than the priest because it says he looked at him, he walked over, and he looked at him lying there, but he also passed by on the other side. Can you just see the hope rise in this man's life? He's like, oh, somebody's coming. I hear footsteps, and you know, he's blood in his eyes, and he's peeking through that, and he's like, are you here to help me? And the guy looks at him, observes the situation, and he leaves for whatever reason. Maybe he prays. God sends somebody to help that man. I don't know. I've been guilty of that. Have you? Oh, don't act like a bunch of saints in the church. 
we're in a hurry on our way to a dinner date and we see somebody broke down and you start messing with the radio. I didn't see that, God. Or God, would you please send somebody to help him out? So anyways, whatever reason, the priest and the temple assistant pass him by. Now verse 33, it says, then a despised Samaritan. At this moment, the ears and the eyes perk up of this Jewish expert because they hate Samaritans with a capital H. They hate them. And it goes way, way back. You had the United Kingdom of 120 years with Saul and with David and with Solomon. And after that, the divided kingdom, the northern kingdom goes off into captivity. And they bring a bunch of Gentiles in there. And they intermingle. And some of the, the people from Samaria, the Jews there, married men and women. And they were considered a half-breed to the, the original Jews. In fact, later in Nehemiah's book, whenever they're going back to rebuild the temple, some of the Samaritans showed up and said, can we help? And they're like, no, you're half-breeds. You're like dogs to us. And so there's this rift that went on for a long time between the Samaritans and the Jews. And so when Jesus, in his story, brings up the despised Samaritan, I'm sure that the expert in the law is thinking, oh, you know what he's going to do? He's probably going to go kick the man when he's down. But no, Jesus makes the despised Samaritan the hero of the story. And if I'm the expert in law, I'm offended now, right? I mean, why couldn't you use the priest as the hero? Why, why do you have to use the Samaritan? I mean, we hate those guys, right? And so it says a Samaritan came along, and it says when he saw a man, he felt compassion. Now, in the Greek, that means um, his bowels were moved, not like a bowel movement, like gross, but that he was sick to his stomach. He was grieved deeply at the condition of the man. And he didn't stop with that. It's his grief or his compassion moved him to action. And so it says he went over to him. It says, going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. This had medicinal purposes. The wine as an antiseptic, the, the olive oil would kind of help kind of seal or coat the wound and it would aid in the healing process. It says he bandaged his wounds. And so do, did he rip some of his garment to make bandages? We don't know. He just took care of the man in his time of need. It says, then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn where he took care of him. He took care of him. So he hung out there. He couldn't just drop him off and say, all right, take care of this guy. I'm out. It says he stayed there. He took care of him. It says in verse 35, the next day, he handed the innkeeper two silver coins, two denarii. Now, if you remember from the last two weeks, a denarii was a day's wage. Now, some have suggested that uh, the cost of staying in the inn could be as cheap as one-thirtieth of a day's wage. And so it's possible that this man gave the innkeeper enough money that this hurt man could stay with him almost two months. That's pretty generous, isn't it? He gives him two coins, and he says, hey, take care of this man. And then he says, if his bill runs higher than this, I'll pay you the next time I I'm here. That's pretty impressive, too, because, you know, the innkeeper could have obviously taken advantage of the situation and run that bill up. And, but, but it's important to understand the Good Samaritan says, hey, if his bill is any higher than that, when I return, I will pay it. And this is why this is significant. Because back in their day, they didn't have Chapter 11 bankruptcy. Um, if you owed a debt and couldn't pay the debt, you were sold into slavery to pay that debt. And so, in essence, the man that was beaten by the thieves had the care he needed taken longer than what the money was there to provide for, the innkeeper had every right in the world to say, hey, um, you owe me a lot of money for the care that I've given to you, and now you're my slave, and you'll work for me until it's paid for. But the Good Samaritan says, hey, if he owes you anything, I, I'll take responsibility for that, and when I return, I'll pay it in full. We need to see that, right? Now Jesus responds with this question, 
As again, again, as I said, question, he responds to the question, the man answers, Jesus answers. The man asks another question, Jesus gives the parable, and then he asks the question, now, which of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by the bandits? The man, the expert in the law, couldn't even say the name Samaritan because I hate him so much. Who, who was it, the priest, the Levite, or the Samaritan? It was, I can't even say it. Hate those guys. I guess it was the man, the man who showed him mercy. And then Jesus responded, yes, now go and do the same. So uh, the way I want to approach this is from two perspectives, our observation of this passage. Um, let's look at it like a swimming pool. you got the shallow end and the deep end. I think the shallow end is the obvious point of the parable. The moral of the story is that we, too, should be like the Good Samaritans, showing need and care to those that are hurting, those who are broken, and those that are in, in deep need to show compassion, right? So if you want to write these down, there's just a, a couple points to consider. Good Samaritans are compassionate towards others. We should be compassionate towards other people. Um, good Samaritans are moved beyond that compassion to action. So we don't just feel compassion, but we're moved to do something about to alleviate suffering and pain. And so I think we need to know that. Good Samaritans look beyond race and religion. Notice it doesn't say anything about the man. We don't know anything about the man. In fact, the priest didn't know if it was a Jew, a Gentile, a Samaritan. He didn't know. He just saw a man half naked or half, half dead but naked on the side of the road. Nothing to identify who he was. He was a human being. How many know human beings are created in the image of God? And they matter to him. They should matter to us as well. Amen? Amen? All right, so we see um, that good Samaritans look beyond. I mean, that, that, that guy doesn't agree like I agree. That guy looks different than I look like. They, they work at a different place that I don't agree with. They, ooh, they're a Democrat or whatever it is, you know, you say. Like, we're different, and, and, and so good Samaritans look beyond all that stuff and see the human uh, being that's in need, and they minister the need. Good Samaritans show kindness without expecting anything in return. That, that's what we can see in the shallow end of this story. That's where we usually focus at. But as I said earlier, you've got a, a greater context at work here, and I think it helps us um, to understand the context. Luke, if you were to divide the book up into four places, um, you have the introduction of the Son of Man, and then you have the ministry of the Son of Man. But in chapter 9, verse 51, there's a new section, the rejection of the Son of Man that would go all the way to the end of Luke where we have the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. And so this parable falls within this section of the rejection of the Son of Man. What has happened before this, um, chapter 9, verse 51, it says, At this time, or as the time drew near for him to ascend to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out to Jerusalem. He's told the disciples, hey, the Son of Man is going to be handed over and crucified. And it says he was like making a beeline for Jerusalem. So some people call this the travel narrative. The rest of Luke is Jesus is on his way to do what? To die on a cross. That's why he came, right? And so Jesus has been rejected by the elite, by the spiritual leaders. He's been rejected. He's on his way to pay the penalty for the sins. And in this context, this religious Expert in the law stands up, testing Jesus, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, obey the law perfectly. How many of you know that's impossible to do? Now, we know that because we have the rest of the scriptures, but they in their day felt like that they were superior to everyone else, that they um, guarded the law and that they were good at keeping the law. And that's why it probably was no problem at all for this guy to say, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. 
And so when I read the parable, I almost read it like an indictment that Jesus is putting there to show the man, like a mirror, hey, are you really obedient to those commands? Because here's a story about a good Samaritan, and as you consider who you might be in the story, you see that maybe you're not, especially when I brought up that Samaritan name and how offensive that would have been to the, the religious expert as Jesus is kind of showing him, hey, are you really obedient to that command to love your neighbor as yourself? Showing him his falling short, if you will, of that standard, that glorious standard. And so on the deep end, here's a couple things that I want us to see. I think they're very important. Um, eternity cannot be inherited by what I do. Now, y'all know that, right? I mean, we teach it enough in the church. It is by grace that we're saved. This is a, a gift of God. It's a work of his grace, not by works so that we can't boast about it, right? We cannot inherit eternity by the things that we do. In fact, it's kind of an oxymoron when he says, what do I need to do to inherit? If you're in the family and in the will, you do nothing. You inherit it, right? And so for him to ask the question in the first place, what do I need to do to inherit, was kind of off. But we understand that we are not made right by the works that we do. There's nothing that we could ever do. The Bible says that our righteousness is like filthy rags compared to him. So on our best day, there's nothing that we could do to be good enough to inherit eternal life. I hope everyone in the room knows that as truth. Because there are still people in this world that will say, you know what? The way I'm approaching life is at the end of my life, I'm going to let the good outweigh the bad. And I'm going to hope that as I stand before the righteous judge, he's going to say, well, Shane, you had a lot of good days. You had these bad days, but your good outweighs your bad. And therefore, you know, I'm going to grant you access to eternity. Nothing we could ever do will ever grant us access to eternity. Nothing on our own by way of works. Amen? So now why do I say that so confidently? Romans, Paul says it this way about the law. So uh, if I can keep the law perfectly, I don't need grace. But we know that no one could keep the law perfectly. Paul says in verse 19 of chapter 3, Obviously the law applies to those to whom it was given for its purpose. Say purpose. Why was the law given? He says its purpose is to keep people from having excuses, right? The purpose of the law was to reveal to them their need for salvation, their need for a Savior. It was pointing towards Christ, even way, way back in the Old Testament. So the purpose of the law was to keep people from having an excuse and to show them that the entire world is guilty before God, all of sin and fallen short of the glory of God, Right? He says, for no one, say no one, no one can ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands. The law simply shows us how sinful we are. So hear this, church. We're not saved by our works. We can never be saved by our works. There's nothing that we could ever do to inherit eternal life because the law, like a weight scale, it don't make me fat. It just shows me that I'm fat. Right? The law reveals to us our sinful condition. So here's the good news. God made a way for us to inherit eternal life through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Right? That's the gospel. Jesus came. He died on the cross. He took the sins of all humanity on him. He was buried, crucified. On the third day, he was raised uh, back to life. And he now sits at the right hand of the Father in heaven. What a, what a great, great news. And he says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. The good news is Jesus is our good Samaritan. When you read the story of the good Samaritan, you're, you're tempted to find out, like, who do I most identify with? And I have to be honest, some days I identify with a priest. I'm too busy to see the needs that are around me. 
I'm doing the Lord's work. I've got things to do, and I, I can't you know, mess up my schedule to, to pull over and help someone in a time of need. Sometimes, I'm going to be honest, I identify with the priest, and I miss those opportunities. There are days when I'm like the Good Samaritan, but it's not every day. Amen? And so who do you identify with? I think everyone on planet Earth needs to identify with a man who was beaten, left on the side of the road, half dead, because that's the condition of all humanity. Desperate, desperate need. And Jesus, the good news, like the good Samaritan, shows up. And I think it's what Luke wants us to see. Luke, I don't think Jesus told the story to say, hey, by the way, I'm the good Samaritan. I think Luke, though, is saying, hey, guys, look at this. Jesus is our good Samaritan because he shows up and he saves us, right? He, he rescues us. He saves us from death, eternal death. The Bible says the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. So our good Samaritan saves us from death. He heals us. Um, Psalm 147 reminds us that he heals the brokenhearted and he binds up their wounds. He pays for it all. Aren't you glad he paid for it all? When Jesus died on the cross, he didn't pay for some of the sins. He paid for all of the sins. Very generous. It shows the lavish, generous love, I believe, of our Savior. He paid all of our sins. And most importantly, he guarantees that we are not a slave. The chains are broken. We sang that song earlier, right? And he says, if you're in Christ, you're free. You're no longer a slave of fear. You are free. And so when I see this passage, looking at it from a deep perspective, the deep end, it's like, whoa. You see the story of the Good Samaritan, and you see how awesome his love is toward us. That is pretty impressive to me. So Jesus is our Good Samaritan. Hopefully every one of you have acknowledged that in your own life and said, I was the broken person on the side of the road, and I needed help so desperately bad. And just at the right time, Jesus came in, and he saved me from death. Right? He healed me. He paid the price of the penalty for my sins because of his atonement on the cross. Right? And he guarantees that I'm no longer a slave. Praise God. And the last part of that, I would say, go and do likewise. Jesus' last answer to the man after he answered correctly was go and do likewise. The law always says, do this and live. But grace says, trust him and you'll live, now do that, right? So to put it another way, we're like, I don't do to inherit eternity. I've already inherited eternity because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and because of that, I do. Make sense? So now, to say we should be like the Good Samaritan, to go out and show compassion and love to those that are hurt and broken, I think it's not easy to do without Christ in us. But when we belong to him, and we acknowledge that we ourselves were in need, and he saved us, and he healed us, he paid for it all, and he guaranteed that we're no longer slaves. It gives us a little bit more of a heart to now go and do likewise, like our Savior also did for us. Amen? And so I would ask the question, are you identifying with the religious leader, the expert, and you're trying to justify yourself today by saying, hey, what boxes do I need to check off in order to be made right with God in order to earn favor enough to go to heaven when I die. I hope you hear me saying there's nothing, nothing that you can do in your own strength. The only thing you can do is trust in him, right, and what he did to provide that salvation. Are you trying to justify yourself? I would say um, it's impossible to do. It's like going out to the ocean saying we're going to swim to Hawaii. Now, some of us can swim further than others. 
Some of you will swim further than me, but nobody's making it, right? It is impossible. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. Do you identify more with the priest or the Levite? You find yourself too busy or with no compassion. My heart would be that we would soften our hearts, that God would soften our hearts and say, God, you know, we live in a culture that just people try to take advantage of the system all the time, and it kind of gives us a hard heart, right? Right? People are trying to rip us off, and we, and we get hard-hearted that way. But God, I want to be soft, and I want to be willing to be used by you in those moments. It doesn't mean I'm going out and beating the bushes and looking for opportunities, but God has a way of bringing them into my path. And when he does, God, is that, is that one? Is that who you want me to help today? To soften our hearts, to be less like the priest and the Levite in the story. Or you like the good Samaritan. Add a boy, add a girl, good job. Keep it up. Reality is we don't always do that. Or maybe you're like the man who was beaten and left for dead, and you're on the side of the road, and you're like, man, this world has beat me up, and I'm battered and scarred by sin, and I feel like there's no hope in life, half dead, and wondering who will save me. i got good news for you. His name's Jesus. His name is Jesus. And he said that he loved us so much, God did, that he gave Jesus, right, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Whosoever would believe in him would not perish would have everlasting life. Jesus is the answer to all of our greatest needs. Amen? So, Jesus, um, I believe it's a beautiful picture of Jesus and what he's done for us. But at the same time, what can we take away? What can we apply? I think that we could all uh, be more, um, I guess, compliant to what he's calling us to do and be that Samaritan to whoever God brings um, in our, our way. Amen? So let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day. Thank you for your word. Thank you for just the revelation that comes from your word. When we read it, when we ask you to show us, when we have you direct our affairs in life, and we don't come to your word with our minds already made up, but God, we're willing to let you speak to us. Lord, I know that you told this story in response to a question this man had, who is my neighbor? And I thank you for that story because it reveals to us your heart and what, not, not who is my neighbor, but how can I be a neighbor to those around me? And it reveals your heart. And so I pray, God, that you would help us to be sensitive to the opportunities that are in front of us. Uh, Lord, that we would be your hands and your feet when you want us to. Um, Lord, I, I ask also that you would help us to see a bigger picture. And Lord, just be filled with a sense of awe and uh, praise um, at what you've done for humanity by making a way for us to be made right with you. We know that we can't inherit eternal life by our works. We know that it is a gift from you. And Lord, like anyone would present a gift, the recipient has to just receive the gift and open it up. And I pray that if there be anyone here today that has not placed their faith in you, they see themselves on the side of the road, broken down, busted, discouraged, with no hope, that today they would look to you um, as their hope, the only one that can heal them, the only one that can save them, the only one that can break those chains. I pray that today they would place their faith in you. Lord, would you be honored in our lives as we leave this place today? We humbly ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.